0: Well, again, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I'm thinking of my dad. I'm also thinking about my three kiddos, Jackson, Annabeth, and Willa. You know, last week in 1 Thessalonians, the three missionaries, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they encouraged the Thessalonians to make it their aim, their highest aim, to please God. And I think that's a good word, more than a good word, a God word for all of us dads. That our highest aim should be to please God. Our, our highest aim should not be about ourselves. Our highest aim shouldn't be about our work. It shouldn't be about the people at work. It, it, it shouldn't even be about our family that we're seeking to serve. Now, the first step in being a godly dad is to make it our purpose, our definitive target to please God. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 11 this morning. I was 17 years old when I felt the call uh, into what we called vocational ministry at my church. And thankfully I had some good mentors uh, right there, my pastor, my youth pastor, some other people who taught me the ins and outs of ministry. They taught me the ins and outs of spiritual conversations and the ins and outs of of teaching the Bible. And and they would always encourage that. A great question to ask, whether in a, a personal conversation with somebody or in the middle of a message, is if you died tonight what do you think would happen next? Now, I thought that was always kind of morbid at 17. You know, I wasn't thinking about dying that often, but it was a piercing question. If you died tonight, what do you think would happen? Well, in our passage today, the Thessalonians are pondering such things. They're not really that much concerned about themselves, but they're concerned about their fellow Christian brothers and sisters there in Thessalonica who have died. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now the scripture tells us very clearly that death is an enemy. And we believe it because it says it in the word of God. But we also believe it because we've experienced it Here on earth. Death is an enemy. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 26 says the last enemy to be defeated is death. Then in Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 it says that death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire after Jesus returns. And then in the very next chapter of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 4, it says that famous passage we all know, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Death is an enemy. It is an enemy that Christ will defeat once and for all when he returns. But right now in our lives, we experience it. And it seems like the Thessalonians have bumped into that great enemy recently. The three missionaries don't want them to grieve like the rest of mankind because they grieve as those who have no hope. They want them to grieve. Uh, Christian grief is important, it's good, uh, it is necessary, but Christian grief should be distinct. It should be unique because our grief is informed by hope. What you believe happens to you after you die is a really important thing. It's a, it's a lovely thought to think that all religions are essentially the same, and some people choose this one, and, and we chose that one. But at the end, we're all trying to accomplish the same goals. But it's that question of what do you think happens after you die where we see the different religions begin to diverge and separate themselves. It is important what you believe will happen after you die. And I'm not sure is an answer that you shouldn't be satisfied with. The Thessalonians are grieving, but Paul wants them to grieve differently because they have this hope. Now notice a little hopeful foreshadowing. He refers to death as those who have fallen asleep, meaning if I'm sleeping, there is going to be an awakening. Verse 14, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. So here Paul and his friends are laying the groundwork Jesus' resurrection is both the foundation and the pattern. Jesus died. Our Christ-following friends have died. Jesus was resurrected. Our Christ-following friends will be resurrected. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the heart of the Thessalonians' concern is coming into greater focus here. They... They believe with everything in them that Jesus is going to return to earth to establish his forever kingdom here on a new earth. And as we've already seen in First Thessalonians, I feel like I mention it every week, this return is at the forefront of their mind. In fact, some have even believed it so much that they've quit working, believing Jesus is going to return next week, so what's the purpose in me working this week? And they've now become dependent on the Christian family there in Thessalonica to take care of them, and Paul addressed that last week. Now remember, Jesus told his disciples about his return. We see that in Matthew chapter 24, where he gives them a list of signs. When you see these things, make sure that your antenna goes up because it means my return is close. When he ascends back into heaven, those disciples are watching him disappear into the clouds and two angels appear next to them and say to those same disciples, in the way that you've seen him go, he will return. Those disciples become apostles, and now they're spreading the word, the news of what Jesus has done in his life, death, his resurrection, and his promised return. And they're so committed to believing that Jesus could return at any moment, they're sacrificing creature comforts in their lives uh, because of it. In fact, the apostle Paul says that he chose not to get married because he believed that Jesus' return was so uh, imminent. Uh, He wanted to be singularly focused on spreading the gospel The good news. And it seems like the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy have spread that fervor of Jesus' return to the Thessalonians. But as they've been thinking about Christ's return, a question has popped up What about our brothers and sisters in Christ who have already died? If Jesus is returning to set up his forever kingdom on a new earth, but they've already died, will they somehow miss out on it because they're not alive? When he returns and the Apostle Paul says, absolutely not. Those Jesus believers who died, they reached their finish line first. And he's going to show them in just a second, which means that they will experience Jesus' return first. In verse 14, it says that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. The Apostle Paul also wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So what the Apostle Paul is teaching is if we are here alive with our bodies, it means that we're not with the Lord. But when we, in his words in Philippians chapter 1, depart from these bodies, when we die, we will be with the Lord. That's why he tells the Philippians that actually dying is gain because it meant that he could depart and be with Christ. Now, Paul is making it clear here that when Jesus returns, those people who are with him, our Christian brothers and sisters, are going to be returning with him as well. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, before we bite into the stake of these specific verses, a little preface from The Waiter. I hope you don't mind if I nerd out a little bit for, the, for a few minutes. Uh, the study of Jesus' return and the subsequent events surrounding his return is called eschatology. It means the study of the last things. If you grew up in church, you might have heard these topics called uh, the end times. Now, what you have in the scripture concerning eschatology, the study of the last things, are different authors writing to different audiences for different purposes. What we ideally would like to see is one whole book of the Bible just dedicated to start to finish. This is going to happen. 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 happen. But God in his sovereignty chose not to reveal these things to us. Even in Revelation, which we think of as only about eschatology, we see in the first three chapters it's written to seven specific churches, real churches with real people in them, and then even the purposes for which the book was written is is listed there. So what you have are these bits and pieces scattered throughout the New Testament, which gives clear teaching. But in our human nature, for the last 2,000 years, Christians have wanted to put together an orderly and sensible timeline. But because of the way God has chosen to reveal these things, these timelines are, well, they're hard to pin down. And it means that Christians throughout the ages have interpreted these things differently. Bible scholars usually group the four primary interpretations of eschatology into four groups. And I'll list them here for you. There's millennial, postmillennial, premillennial, and dispensational. I told you uh, that I was going to nerd out for just a second. So stay with me. Uh, amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial, and dispensational. You, uh, you, you can uh, think of them as teams. Right? And all these teams, all four of these teams, they love Jesus. They love God. They love their neighbor. They love the Bible. They have a high view of the Bible. They believe that the Bible is God's word, and yet all four of these term teams interpret uh, the Jesus return and the writings of the Scripture a little bit differently. Now, just like a, a team, each team is a product of its own time. It's ref- it came out of a specific culture and, and cultural events, and each team has uh, some very strong strengths, and each team also has some weaknesses. Now for most of my life, the the dispensational team has been in the lead here in the United States. And and listen, if you grew up in church, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, People can get pretty touchy about their end times teams. Uh, at, at my church growing up, uh, my grandfather was the one that was leading the charge on the study of eschatology. I, I mean, he, he loved it in, a, in kind of in a weird way. I remember as an adult walking into their home and uh, he was reading a Bible commentary about the book of Revelation. He wasn't even studying for a lesson. He didn't have any notes out. He was just reading it for fun. I mean, I'm a pastor and I don't read commentaries for fun. But he loved, loved to read about, hear about uh, the return of Christ and all of the events. And and we uh, kind of grew up in a a dispensational church. So when I went off to college... You know, I have this Bible degree. I'm sitting in class and and one of my professors begin to explain these four historic views and interpretations, these four teams. And I had never heard anything like that. And so I go back on Christmas break and I'm with my grandfather and I say, hey, grandpa, did you know that there are like people who love God and love Jesus and love the Bible? And they they don't see the things the way that we see them. And now I wasn't there when Jesus flipped over the tables in the temple. But I can get a good picture of what that must have been like, because that's how my grandpa responded when I even hinted that his team maybe wasn't the only team. So I understand these things are very, very touching. And what really uh, touching and what really matters is is not which team you're on, but is if you have a curiosity, I'd encourage you to do some reading and do some studying because. Even when you're reading things that you don't feel like are that convincing. And you should maybe have one that you feel like is the best interpretation of scripture. All four of them will help you long for the return of Christ, which is a very, very good thing for our faith. Now to the main course, sorry for the, the, uh, the digression. It says the Lord himself will come down from heaven. So again, talking about Jesus' return back to earth to set up his forever kingdom on a newly created earth there will be a loud cry from the archangel and then there will be a trumpet blast now obviously the thessalonians nor any of us have experienced christ's return but these things a loud cry a trumpet blast a a pronouncement the thessalonians would have been familiar With this, because these kinds of pomp and circumstance happened when rulers, when monarchs had been out conquering, had been out fighting, and would come back into their capital cities. Even we see this in the in the first half of the Bible, in Second Samuel, when King David. Has been out and he comes back in chapter six to the the city of Jerusalem. There are trumpets, there is music, there is dancing, there is celebrating, and it seems like all Jerusalem has come out to welcome him back into the city. The king is returning. That is the point that Paul is making here. When Christ returns, the king is returning. Blow the trumpets, let everybody know, let the cry go out Jesus has returned. And he also writes, the dead in Christ will rise first. Resurrection will happen. In the same way that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, Christians, followers of Jesus who have died will be resurrected from the dead. Their spirit, which is with Christ right now in heaven, will be reunited with their resurrection bodies. As Paul tells the Corinthians, what was sown uh, in in burial or cremation, uh, perishable into the ground, will be raised imperishable, will be raised with immortality. Now, remember, Paul and Silas and Timothy are saying these things to comfort them. They're worried about their deceased Christian friends. Then he goes on in verse 17. Those of us who are alive then will take our turn. The dead in Christ will rise first, but then we will be caught up in the air. We will meet the Lord in the clouds, it says. Now, when a conquering monarch or leader would come back to their capital, the citizens would go out to meet that hero and then they would sometimes join in the parade. And you, you experience this when you host people at your house for dinner, you've got everything ready, the food is prepared, the table is set and you're just waiting for people to arrive and you see them pull up, what do you do? You don't stand behind the door and wait until they knock. No, you come outside, you meet them at the car, and then what happens? Then you all go back into the house together. I believe that's the picture that Paul is painting here. When Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will be resurrected from the dead. Their spirits are with Christ, will be reunited with their resurrection bodies, and those of us who are still alive, we're gonna go out and we're gonna meet him, and then we will triumphantly parade back to earth with Christ. He says in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. He's gonna say that again in just a second. Chapter five, verse one. Now brothers and sisters about the times and dates we do not need to write to you for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That phrase day of the Lord, it has a rich, rich, rich biblical history. And in the Old Testament, what we see is the day of the Lord is decisive salvation and decisive judgment, which is exactly what's going to happen when Christ returns. Decisive salvation, we're going to be saved, and decisive judgment. And it will come like a thief in the night, which means although we know it is going to happen, it's going to take us by surprise. If you've ever had someone steal from you, you you know this feeling. Years ago, um, I, was, uh, I came out to my car in the morning And the door, uh, driver's side door was a a, a little bit open, which at the time, you know, I was in college, I was not super responsible. So maybe I just left it open on accident, but then opened the door and I could see somebody had stolen from me. The stereo was gone. Uh, Some bags that I had in the car were gone. They had stolen my CDs. Apparently they weren't very good CDs because all down the street, uh, they had thrown the CDs out. Uh, They they didn't care for my taste in music. But if you had asked me that night before I went to bed, hey, is there a chance that someone someone might break into your car tonight. I would say, yeah, absolutely, there's a chance. I've heard about that before. I know the statistics out there. But still, even though I knew it was a possibility, I knew that it happened. When it happened to me, I was totally taken by surprise. And this is how Paul says the return of Christ will be. It will take us by surprise. Verse three, and while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So just like a woman giving birth can't escape labor, the world won't be able to escape the decisive judgment that Christ will bring. Now remember, the Thessalonians are being persecuted and it could be that their persecutors are justifying that persecution in the name of peace and safety. Because we see this happening at other points in the scripture. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, is arrested. And what is the false charge against him? It's that he supports the destruction of the temple. So those people are saying, no, 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 protect the temple. He's advocating for destroying the temple. Peace and safety. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are arrested. What is their charge? Disturbing the peace of the city. Even Jesus, the the, the religious leaders used peace and safety as a way to convince Pilate to put him to death. They say to Pilate, hey, the the Jewish people, instead of giving their allegiance to the emperor in Rome, Jesus is causing them all kinds of chaos. He's he's actually telling them to worship him instead of the, the Roman emperor. And then in Acts chapter 17, in Thessalonica, The apostle Paul and and, and Silas and Timothy are persecuted and what do they say about them? These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Peace and safety. And now this motive for persecution is being labeled at the Christians there in Thessalonica. And so Paul says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. These opponents may be out there saying peace and peace and peace and safety and safety and safety. But they will not be able to escape the decisive judgment of God. Verse four. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. The Thessalonians are not in the dark. God has shared with them the gospel and in the gospel is the promised return of Jesus. The Thessalonians know the plan. The plan should not take them by surprise. We know the plan. Jesus is returning. His return should not take us by surprise. Verse six, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake And sober because we know Christ is returning because we know that when Christ returns, he's going to set up his forever eternal kingdom here on a new earth. Knowing those things should be like an electroshock to our spiritual senses. We should be awake and sober, fully alert, fully tuned in. Verse seven, for those who sleep, sleep at night and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. This is very similar to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 6 of that letter. It's a picture of a soldier ready for battle. June 6th was the 76th anniversary of D-Day, a massive Allied move against Nazi Germany uh, trying to liberate France. The 101st Airborne uh, was to drop in behind the German lines, a parachute in, Uh, uh, somebody in the British Army came up with this great idea Uh, so that the parachuters could carry more equipment they created what they called a leg bag so you can picture a a big duffel bag attached to these parachuters leg so when they jumped out they would have their weapons and all of those things in that duffel bag they would be able to carry more things with them well it seemed like a great idea it was actually a bad idea because the planes were moving much faster than they had practiced because the planes were being shot at and those bags were much heavier combined with the blast from the propeller as soon as the parachute stepped out of the plane to parachute down behind German lines. The leg bags just totally fell apart. So you have a huge number of the 101st Airborne landing in France on D-Day, totally unarmed. And Paul is telling the Thessalonians, hey, Christ is coming. This is a big thing. Our spiritual senses are fully tuned in. We are fully alert. Make sure you're armed for the battle. And how are they going to be ready? With the breastplate of love and faith and with the helmet of the hope of salvation that will come when Jesus returns. Paul was clear with the Ephesians when he said similar things. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood here. We're wrestling, we're fighting against an enemy that is invisible, unseen principalities and spiritual forces of of evil, the scripture says. So if your enemy has a human name, you're aiming at the wrong person. We are to be armed. We are to be fully alert. We may be busy, but busy isn't armed and alert. We may be argumentative, but argumentative isn't armed and alert. We may be religious. Being religious isn't the same as being armed and alert. We may be confident, But confidence doesn't guarantee that we are armed and alert. Fully armed, fully alert. Verse 9 For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. As I mentioned last week from Colossians 1, verse 13. We were chosen. We were plucked out of the domain of darkness. We were appointed into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And why did God transfer us? He appointed us to receive salvation, not to suffer wrath. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Can I ask you a personal question? Are you confident that when Christ returns, you will be with him forever? Are you confident that you have received the eternal life that he purchased for you through his cross and empty tomb? Have you settled where you will place your faith ultimately? Because I want to urge you, I, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal Son of God, the prophesied, crucified, resurrected, and returning Savior of the world. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you were doing. So these three missionaries, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they, they don't just want the Thessalonians to be encouraged by the words they're reading in this letter. They want the Thessalonians to own the words of this letter and then take turns encouraging one another. And so we're gonna take everything that we've just read and boil it down to one simple action step. Here's Here's a very simple challenge. In the next seven days, have a conversation about the return of Christ with a fellow believer. Would you take that challenge on? I know it's a simple step, But it's a step that we're supposed to take. Encourage one another and build each other up with these words. So in the next seven days, between this Sunday and next Sunday, have a conversation about the return of Christ with another believer. It's a simple, simple, simple step. But who knows what might happen when we obey the word of God. Would you pray with me? God, we are encouraged and built up by these words of Scripture. Jesus, we thank you for your promised return. And I pray that it would make more and more of a difference in our lives. Would you help us to know how we might live in light of of your coming kingdom? Would you help us to be awake and alert? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to finish our gathering the way that we do every single Sunday and uh, with a time of prayer. And so um, you'll see the number below at the bottom of the screen. And if you need prayer of any kind uh, today, I want to encourage you to pick up the phone and, and call somebody on our prayer team. They're, they've got phones in hands; They're standing by. They would love to pray for you. You know, one of the ways that we build each other up is through prayer. And so if you could just use some fortification of your spirit and soul today, uh, for whatever reason, would you call and pray? Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll continue worshiping. God, we bless you, and uh, we thank you, and uh, we pray for one another now, and we ask that you would answer these prayers according to your will and in the name of Jesus.